lesson is found in Mark chapter 5. We are reading verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we marvel at your great power, how you've revealed yourself in mercy to this man. And Lord, we ask that you will speak this morning and reveal yourself to be the same to us, that we could find your mercy fresh and new in our lives through Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. The Gerasene demoniac. Most people's response to this passage is what does this have to do with me? There tends to be two levels of disconnect when we read this, if we're honest with ourselves. And the first level of disconnect that happens when reading a story like this from the ancient world is we think, what do these unclean spirits, this world of demonic activity, this supernatural world that the Bible reveals, what does it have to do with me in my plain, ordinary life in the 21st century. We struggle because we don't feel like it matches up with the world that we live in. We don't see demons and unclean spirits. And we think, that surely this is the wrong diagnosis, and they were just describing reality in a different way. And so we have a hard time relating to passages like this in the Bible because it doesn't match our particular point of view. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant little book, Screwtape Letters, it's a book where a senior demon is, t- is teaching a younger demon, apprentice, 
to uh, tempt Christians. It's brilliant. He has a wonderful line where he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And Lewis, in his classic style, pointing out that two errors can be made about the demons, that they can receive excessive interest or they can receive no interest at all, but that the demons themselves are equally pleased with both, that a magician or a materialist suits them fine. Because, friends, we struggle to take the invisible world, part of God's good creation that He made, we struggle to take it seriously. We are tempted to simply believe in the things that we can see. We fought towards the materialist side of things. And Lewis challenges us not to be such flatlanders, to inhabit the world of the Bible and to see that evil and good are so complicated. But Mark would fuzz this up as well for us because we see that the demon wants nothing to do with Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac, he will ask Jesus to depart He adjures him to leave him alone. But you notice at the end of the story, who asks Jesus to depart? The crowds do. Now, it's not attributed to the demonic. But this is the Bible's way of handling the complexity of our world. That it's the same response. The crowds want nothing to do with Jesus because they are afraid of him. And friends, the supernatural can happen in very natural ways, and the natural can happen in very supernatural ways. And the Bible has a tolerance for all of it. And we can't simply dismiss it out of hand because it simply doesn't work with the world that we think we live in. But this is the first level of disconnect, is people just say the world of unclean spirits doesn't seem to match. But we play right into the world of unclean spirits. Now, the second level of disconnect and perhaps the more real one, is that this man, he's infested with demons. The name given to the demon is Legion, which a legion was a Roman cohort of centurions, roughly 6,000 strong. This man is infested with demonic activity. He lives amongst the dead. He lives in a graveyard. He's beating himself. He's crying out. This was potentially some kind of worship of the dead. He's completely isolated, cut off from society. His life is a complete wreck. And most people say, what do I have to do with this man? My life doesn't look anything like his. How am I relate to relate to this story? Flannery O'Connor, who is one of my favorite Southern novelists, She also wrote short stories, and she was known for her graphic characters. They're often monstrous and disproportionate, where O'Connor would take a certain character feature and she would blow it up to a gigantic size in one particular person, and she would have that character eaten alive by this one particular character trait. She was asked about this in her writing. Listen to what she said. She said, to the heart of hearing you shout, and for the blind, you draw large and startling figures. 
You hear what she was saying about why she wrote in that way? Because she said that the world around her was hard of hearing. And in order to make the point, she had to make it in shocking and grotesque ways to bring it to our attention. And this is something of what Mark is doing. As he gives us the story of the Gerasene demoniac, he's just brought Jesus across the sea where Jesus subdues the storms. And then Jesus is going to raise the dead in just a moment where he subdues death. And here he subdues a man of enormous strength who is infested by demons. And the point that Mark is making to us is that Jesus is the stronger one, that Jesus has the power. And if he can conquer this man who's infested with the demonic activity and with evil just overcoming his life, surely he can handle you too. It's a case of the extreme to show you that Jesus has the power to subdue. And Mark is shouting at the deaf. God is pleading with us, the blind, that we see in this startling figure, that we see Jesus' power not just to save him, but to save everything in between. Because this man is unclean. If we were a Jewish audience, we would find it rather funny the way the story is told. In verse 2, it says he has an unclean spirit. Then we learn that that unclean spirit is actually a legion, 6,000 strong. He's in the country of the Gerasenes, which is across the sea, which was Gentile territory, the Decapolis, 10 cities. That was unclean land. He lives in a graveyard, which for a first century Jew was unclean. And then the demons are ultimately sent into pigs, which were unclean, according to the kosher laws. And so it is almost as the story goes out of the way to let us know that this is the unclean of the unclean. And Jesus subdues him. And so the major question for us this morning as we read the story of the Gerasene demoniac is what happens when we encounter the one who is stronger What happens when the stronger one encounters sin and evil? What does that look like in God's world when the strong man enters the scene and comes to plunder the house? There's two things that we'll focus on. The first is this, is that he confronts evil unveiling its sinister design. That when Jesus enters in and the stronger one is on the scene, He confronts evil, unveiling its sinister design. We learn that the demoniac has an unclean spirit. Jesus reaches the shore. The demoniac runs to him, falls down, and asks to be left alone. It's ironic because this demon has had no mercy on the man that he inhabits, and yet he asks God for mercy. And what we see is the shape of evil in this man's life. And friends, this is also just the shape of sin, what it desires to do to us. This man lived alone amongst the dead. No one could commune with him. He was cut off from human fellowship. He spoke with no one. He had been bound in chains and he had fought. He was completely isolated. And this is one of the features of what sin and evil does. But not only is he isolated, we see in verse 3 that he would beat himself with rocks, bruising himself. 
inflicting harm, self-destructive. This was the nature of the evil that lived inside of him. And not only was he isolated and self-destructive, though, we see the end of what evil's design is when the demons are cast into the pig. Where do the swine go? They rush to their death. And friends, we tend to think of sin as something that liberates us, something by which we throw off societal expectations, something that gives us some life and freedom. And the Bible has exactly the opposite definition, that sin does not liberate us. It doesn't set us free. That sin's intent and the purpose of evil is to destroy us and drag us down, isolate us, cut us off, and cause us to be self-destructive. That it ends human community. That it ends ultimately in our death. Friends, that's how the Bible approaches sin. That it's not just breaking a rule. It's destroying yourself. Taking you away from what God always intended for you to be. It was an early Saturday morning and I received a call. It was a young guy I'd been just meeting with. He was starting to flirt around the edges of our church plant. And we had talked several times. I'd received word from a friend that he seemed to be struggling with alcohol. And so we went out to, to meet him on the Saturday morning. And he had just been released from jail. He said that he didn't do it. But it turned out that my breakfast with him two weeks before that, when I'd asked, I said, hey, Philip, what's your relationship to alcohol, and how are you managing that? He said to me, oh, it's all under control. I like to have drink. I like to go out after work with my coworkers. It's all good. He knew enough theology to be able to cover his behavior. Everything's safe. But then it turned out that behind that justification behind his theology, laid a pretty deep addiction. And the addiction ran so deep that he needed to cover it from his wife. And so he was going to bars and stealing purses and using credit cards to fund his addiction. And it was all okay. It was all under control. And then he was arrested. And so this high-profile, young, promising guy with a big career ahead of him, working for one of the most powerful senators in Washington, Inside of six hours, he had lost his whole job, nearly lost his wife, lost all of his credibility, and his whole future was thrown on hold when he was put into jail. And friends, it's an extreme story, but it does highlight the way that we often play with sin and how we think sin is something that's going to liberate us and free us. And we don't even see the way that it becomes a self-feeding trap and that it leads to one sin upon another, and it multiplies, and it grows on us, and all of a sudden it's metastasized, and we don't know what to do with it. And even when confronted and life is provided, we want to hide it. Friends, that's the nature of evil. It cuts us off. We lose our friends. We lie to them. We engage in self-destructive behaviors that we think will give us life, and ultimately it leads us down into the world of the dead. This is what was going on in my friend's life. This is what's going on with the demoniac. And Jesus confronts just that evil, just that complex. Because the second thing that happens when we meet the stronger one, 
who comes onto the scene is not only does he confront evil, though, he doesn't just come as a prophet, but he comes to restore our humanity, transforming us by his strength. You probably noticed that in the story, in verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. Making the point, Mark reiterates that, that no one had the strength to subdue this man. But what we find is that when Jesus casts the demons from him, confronts the evil inside of him, throws it out, that in verse 15, in a beautiful phrase, he is clothed and in his right mind. All of a sudden, this man who'd been infested by such evil and self-destructive and isolated practices, he's in community with the disciples, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And friends, this is a wonderful picture of the grace of God. The grace of God that doesn't simply just accept us. Yes, there's cleansing and there's forgiveness. We are accepted. But this grace is not just satisfied with that, that the grace of God, when it enters into our lives, transforms us, restoring us to the humanity that God always intended for us to be. Bit by bit, this man clothed and in his right mind. That's what the stronger one, Jesus, comes to do. Remember that John the Baptist said, one stronger than I is coming? No one was strong enough for this man, but Jesus is. And he is clothed in his right mind. Now we also see in verse 19 that Jesus tells the man to go home to his friends. And you see, a work of redemption was not just so he got to be a great individual, but he was restored to his home. He was restored to community and to life. This man who had been completely cut off. Martin Luther was once asked by a man who was freshly converted, he said, what should I do now? And Luther responded, he said, what is your work now? And the man said, I'm a shoemaker. Luther then said, then make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. He was making the point that, yes, God has entered into your life. Go home. Live inside of the community that God appointed for you. Go and be a good, industrious citizen and participant. Go and be a Christian inside of that world. And that's what Jesus does. He restores our humanity, clothing us and putting us in our right mind, bringing us back into community. And friends, the question for us is, can we trust Him? Do we believe that He's stronger than the sin and evil in our world? Do we believe that He's stronger in, than the shame that occupies our hearts and our minds? Do we believe that Jesus is stronger than the guilt that lies within us? Is He stronger than the selfishness of our hearts? Do we trust that He can overcome that? Because on days we feel like the garrison demoniac, that we've tried to bind ourselves in chains, we've given ourselves rules, and we simply can't fix it. And friends, it's because you can't. You can't fix it. Only Jesus can. And we have to come to Him upon our knees, and He has to bless us with His mercy and with His grace, and transformation enters into our lives. The 
this is the work of Jesus, the grace of God to accept us and to change us, clothing us and putting us in our right mind. So what does this yield, though, this kind of encounter where we meet Jesus, our evil is confronted, we experience His transforming power? What does it look like on the other side? Two pieces to it here in the story. We find that the man was clothed and in his right mind, and Mark says, sitting there. Luke, in his version, says, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And this brings us back into that theme of the community of Jesus' family, who were with him at the table, devoted to his word. And here, the demoniac, clothed and in his right mind, is with the community of the disciples at the feet of Jesus, being taught by him, being instructed in the way. And friends, this is one of the very first fruits of one who has encountered Jesus in all of his authority and power and experienced his grace, is that we become supple to him. It's a beautiful prayer from Psalm 86. In verse 11, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And friends, that becomes the native language of the one who's experienced the transforming power of Jesus, is that we're looking for him to teach us, sitting at his feet, to being devoted to his word, not simply to gain knowledge, but to gain transformative knowledge, knowledge that applies into life and changes us and directs us in the way. That's the prayer of the disciple. That's what happens to one who's transformed. From time to time, people ask, Chuck, why do you structure a worship service the way you do? When I was a young graduate of seminary, I had an assignment to take hundreds of years of historical liturgies and make sense of them. But my mentor was asking me to read these different worship services from across time and to trace the development of it. And I began to notice something. I was used to a fairly custom order, but I began to notice that my order of worship didn't exactly match with theirs, and so it, asked, it led me to the question, why? Why? And what I was seeing from men like Calvin and John Knox, historical mentors of mine who I was trying to learn from, was that they began their worship services with confession. And then on the other side of confession, there was praise, and there was celebration of God's goodness. And then immediately following that, there were Scripture readings, and there was teaching and preaching. And I asked myself, well, what happened to the offerings and the prayers? <laughs> Those were supposed to be in there. They were always there, right? And I began to realize that Knox and Calvin and many others, Cranmer, put those after the sermon as a response to the grace of God, but that after con being confronted by Jesus in our sins, the proper place was to be clothed and in our right mind, sitting at his feet, listening to his word. And friends, that liturgical flow of our service, where we are drawn from confession into hearing the God, God's word, is intentional. It has purpose that God is restoring us in our humanity when we come out of our brokenness, out of our bondage, out of our sorrow, out of our night. Jesus, we come, and so we come and we sit and we listen 
and we ask God to teach us his way, to unite our hearts in the fear of his name. That's what we're coming to God to experience. That's what we're asking for God to do week by week. In walking through that same structure, being run down that channel, to experience that, that it becomes part of who we are. And so this is the first thing, that we're sitting there at Jesus' feet. But we also see in verse 19 when the demoniac begs Jesus that he stay with him. Everyone else had departed, but he begs Jesus that he could return across the sea. And Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus sends the man back to his Gentile home and says, go tell them about the mercy of God. Go proclaim what has happened to you. And friends, this is the second motion of one who has experienced the transforming power of Jesus is that we begin to speak of it to others, that we cherish it, and we tend to commend what we cherish in life. When something truly has value, we're going to speak of it to other people. I was talking with my father-in-law a few months ago. He's recently retired, and so he has been adjusting his schedule and finding things to use his time with. One of the things that he is doing in his daily schedule is exercising and getting in shape. And he's done a marvelous job, but one of the channels that he's used is Pilates. I find it humorous every time I think about it. Pilates. And he is always talking about Pilates and these positions and different things, and and it's our ongoing feature in our conversation, and it's obvious that it's been important to him, and he cherishes it, and so he commends it, and he would pay for me to be in Pilates, and you'll not count me dead, catch me dead there because I'm too inflexible, nothing against Pilates. But the sight of that would be ghastly for all. <laughs> but he's been changed by it. It's helped his pain. It's helped his back. It's helped his core strength in phenomenal ways. It's been a good thing for him. He cherishes it, and so he commends it. And friends, until biblical faith enters into our hearts and lives in that kind of way, we won't be the kind of people who commend it. We have to cherish it. We have to know the value of it. It has to run deeper than just one story from a long time ago when you said a certain prayer. As important as that may be, it must be also experiencing the ongoing transformation of it, all the value of what God is for you in Jesus and what he has done to save and deliver you and everything he has for you as well. And it better be better than a cloud and a harp because the story is much richer than that. And friends, it's when we get caught up in that, in that full big story about the God who created the world, who's redeeming that world and will newly and freshly create it in a new heavens and earth. And he does so through the death and resurrection of Jesus, getting caught up in that. That's something to commend. That's something to walk around the cul-de-sac on Piney Place and tell people about. That's something to tell Jacksonville about. A new king, a new order. 
That's the king's feet that we come and sit at. That's the king who's confronted us in our evil and who would rescue us, who would restore our humanity by his spirit. That's what King Jesus does. That's who he is. And so let's come to that king. Let's offer him our worship. Let's give him our thanks. And let's experience his transforming power in our lives to draw us into what he always intended for us to be.